I don't know if you've noticed, or maybe it's just me because I've watched way too much news, uh, but it seems like our culture is a little more fractured, a little more opinionated, uh, a little more divided than what uh, it has been in recent memory. And because this is also an election season, I don't expect it to get much better over the next few months. And we felt like it would be a good time for us as a church to talk about what it means to be united as followers of Jesus, even in the midst of things that make us different and things that divide us. Uh, Dr. Carl Kyle sent me a picture of a t-shirt, and I just couldn't find it before this morning, but it was a great red t-shirt, and it had a great logo on it, and at the top it said, United We Stand, at the bottom it said, Six Feet Apart, and so I was hoping to have that for today, but I couldn't find it, but we want to talk about what it means to be united in Christ, and if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a religious person, uh, I want you to still follow along with me because many of the principles that we're going to talk about this month apply to all of the relationships of our lives. For example, next week we're going to talk about how to listen well. Sometimes whenever we're sitting across from someone who holds a different view than we do or has had a different experience than we've had, one of the most loving things we can do is to listen. And we're going to talk about how important that is to listen. And listen, that'll help you in your marriage. That'll help you in your parenting. That'll help you at the office. That'll help you as you interact with people on social media. And so I hope you'll follow along with me. But today I want to talk about unity. And I am going to talk primarily to Christians today. And I think this is important for us to have a conversation about staying united as a body of believers, even during times where there are many forces that want to pull us apart. I remember reading years ago of Pastor Eric Daniel Harris. He was the pastor of the Kentucky Missionary Baptist Church in Benton, Arkansas, and he was burdened about the division he saw in his church family. I don't know what the issues were, but his church family had become divided and fractured. He kept thinking, I wish there was some project that I could come up with that would pull us all together. Some project that would unite us. If I could just think of some project that would take their eyes off of what they're not agreeing on and give them something to come together for. But he just couldn't think of anything. Until August 24th, 1996, he left the parsonage, went over to the church, and he turned on the AC to prepare for Sunday services. And while he was there, he had an idea of a project that could unify his people. He went into the kitchen, got many rolls of paper towels, brought them into the sanctuary, placed them under an air conditioning vent, and he lit them on fire. And then he left the church and went back to his home and propped up his feet and watched the television. His thought was a little fire damage will get people's attention off of what they're arguing about and bring them together in a project that united them. But 30 minutes after he did that, the whole church building was engulfed in flames. He later had to plead guilty to arson that destroyed his own church. Now, I don't know if the church ever came together in unity, but I know that project did not work. And can I tell you, as your pastor, I do not know of a project that can bring unity, true heartfelt unity among a people of diversity like we are. I don't know of a project, but I know a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he can bring unity to an eclectic, motley crew like this one. All the people of the 80s, you, got, you caught that, didn't you? And so that's what I want to talk about today is the importance of unity in the midst of our diversity. 
And I want to talk to you primarily about four ways the gospel of Jesus Christ unites us. Now, because I've got four points and I've got several scriptures, I'm going to put them up on the screen. These are also available to you on our website, fcbc.life, under the sermons tab. But I'm going to put them on the screen to make them easy for you. And the reason this message of unity is important is not just for unity's sake in the church. Our unity in the church directly impacts our testimony in the world. People who need Jesus are never going to believe our message of reconciliation until they first see us reconciled to one another in spite of our differences. And so there's a lot at stake here. And I hope that the gospel is that defining, unifying, rallying call for each one of us, regardless of our opinions and beliefs and our preferences and our convictions. Because our unity in the Lord is greater than anything that divides us in life. The first way that the gospel unites us, first of all, equally, we need the Savior. The first thing that unites us in this church is we recognize that equally, we need the Savior. I need the Savior, and you need the Savior. I don't care who you are. I don't care your skin color. don't care about your language. don't care about your background. I don't care whether you're white or black or rich or poor. We equally need Jesus. Whenever you read the gospel, uh, the creation account in the book of Genesis, you will see that when God created the seas, he declares it was good. When God creates plant life, he declares it was good. But when God created humanity, when he formed Adam from the dust of the ground, God said, very good. Very good. He reserved that label for the pinnacle of his creation for mankind. And the reason God was able to say very good whenever he created Adam was because he knew that every human being he was going to create in his own image. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, Moses writes, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God says it's very good because mankind, unlike the plant life, unlike the rest of creation, unlike animal life, mankind, you and me, we're created in the image of God. And what that means is just as God is a spiritual being, he made us not just physical but spiritual beings, that just as God is a relational being, he created us for relationships with himself and with each other, and that just as God is a volitional being, he, he gave us the ability to make choices and to have free will, and that just as God rules over creation, he created us in his image and delegated the responsibility to represent him down here. We're created in the image of God. Now, the reason I bring that out is every single person you meet, every single person you know is an image bearer created by God. Your spouse, your children, your co-worker, that person of a different political persuasion, that person from a different lifestyle, that person from a different skin color or ethnicity, they are all created by God in his own image. And because of that, they are worthy of our dignity and respect. There are no second-class people in this world. 
because we are all created in God's image. Now, if you say, wait a minute, now if God created Adam and Eve and all of us, and he says, very good, what went wrong? Because things don't look very good today in the way we treat each other. Something's gone dreadfully wrong in God's very good creation. And the answer is found in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. From Adam, from Eve, to the rest of us, we have all sinned. That word sinned literally means to miss the mark. God put a bullseye out there, a proverbial bullseye, and he says, this is the target for your life. I want you to love me supremely, and I want you to love others sincerely, and every single one of us have sinned. Every single one of us have missed the mark in one way or the other, to one degree or the other. None of us have loved God like he deserves. None of us have loved other people at all times like they deserve. Sometimes we love ourselves more than we love God. Sometimes we treat ourselves better than we treat someone else. And because of our sin, we have rebelled against God who created us, who loves us, who has given us everything, and who demands our obedience, but also he deserves it because he's a good God. And yet we've rebelled against him, and we have messed up God's good creation. And until we come to, fact, to, come to terms with that fact, we won't be able to understand what's going on in our society. Can I tell you, our problem in society is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. We are sinners rebelling against God and fighting against each other. And we have to admit that. In fact, the old preacher said, he said, only the church and the biker gang, the hell's angels, make you admit how bad you are before you can become a member. And, uh, and that's true. Before we can get right with God and each other, we have to come to terms with that we are sinners. And we all stand in need of the Savior. Another thing that I used to hear those old-time preachers say when I was a kid growing up is the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter who you are or how good you think you are. When you come to Jesus, you need him equally like every other person. Just because you're white or you're black or you're rich or you're poor or you're male or you're female or you're American or Russian makes no difference. We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. And we equally need the Savior. The good news is, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. We deserve separation from God because of our sin. But the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a good news. That because we equally need the Savior, the Savior is equally available to us all. No matter who you are, you can turn from your sin, place your confidence in Him as He died for you on the cross, as He was buried and rose from the dead, and you can receive the free gift of eternal life. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You could never deserve it, but He offers it to you freely by His grace. And dear friend, equally we need the Savior. And the next time I start feeling higher and haughtier and holier than thou, remind me, I needed Jesus just like anybody else. In the same grace of God that saved a wretch on Philip's highway, it's the same grace of God that saved me. Because I'm no better. 
I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That'll humble you as you look at your life and you look at others. So equally, we need the Savior. The second way the gospel unites us is equally, we belong to God's family. Now, there's a sense in which we all belong to God's family by way of creation. There is one God who has created us all. You're not an accident. God loves you, He created you, and He has a plan for your life. But there is a spiritual sense in which you're only a part of the family of God when you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Then you are right with God, not based on what you've done or deserve, but based on what Christ has done for you on the cross of Calvary. And that means that every other person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is a member of the same family that you're a member of. And just like in our human families, we don't always get along. Why are we shocked when sometimes even in God's family, we don't always get along? The old ditty said, to dwell above with the saints we love, that will indeed be glory. But to dwell below with some of these saints I know, that's another story. And I think you can relate to that. Sometimes we grate each other's nerves. Sometimes we offend each other. Sometimes we hurt one another. Sometimes we disappoint one another. But it does not change the fact that if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, and if I've trusted Christ as my Savior, then we are a, mem- we are a part of the same family, God's family. John chapter 1, verse 12 John, writing about Jesus, said, But to all who did receive him, he's talking about everyone who welcomed Jesus into their life, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Aren't you grateful that you become a child of God because you place your faith in Jesus? Paul would put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Listen to this. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. I'm grateful for July 4th weekend, and I hope you had a great July 4th. And we are blessed to live in America. And and there's nothing wrong with being uh, cognizant of the fact that there is no perfect country, but we are blessed in so many ways. But listen, your first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're a part of the family. You're not just a guest at God's house. You are a member of God's household. It's different when you're a guest, right? You don't go everywhere in the house. You don't do anything that you're not given permission to do. And, and you know, you, you just keep your parameters as a guest. But when you're home, it's totally different. And you are a member of God's household. And he continues that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. He's talking about the gospel that they preached. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He says, listen, you trace your life and your journey back far enough and you may be surprised to discover that we all end up at one person. We all end up at Jesus. He's the cornerstone. 
He's the one that unites us and connects us to all other believers and to himself. And he is doing something special in your life and mine. So that means no matter who you look at, no matter where they live, no matter what their skin color, no matter what their political beliefs are, if they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're a part of the family of God and you need to treat them as such. Third way the gospel unites us. Equally, we need a Savior. Equally, we belong to God's family. And thirdly, equally, we share in the great commandment and the great commission. Equally, we share in the great commandment and the great commission. We call it the great commandment because at one point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was asked a trick question by some religious leaders who wanted to get him embroiled in a theological debate that would hurt his popularity among the people. The question was, okay, teacher, you're so smart. Out of all the 613 or so commandments in the Old Testament, which is the greatest? And there were different schools of thought of which commandment in the Old Testament was the greatest. The Ten Commandments plus the oral traditions that had developed over the centuries. And they thought they could give this trick pop quiz to Jesus and trip him up, but they didn't realize uh, he wrote the textbook. He wrote the quiz. He, he knows the answer. And so he, he said in Matthew chapter 27, verses 37 through 40, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great, this is the great and first commandment. Now, you know, he's not just making this up. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and following. He's, he's quoting the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. And so he said, this is the first and great commandment. But like any good preacher, he gives you more than you ask for, right? And so he continues, and the second, they didn't ask him about the second, but he's going to tell them, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There again, he didn't just make this up off the top of his head. He didn't say, sounds good to me. He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor. And Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. If you want to know what God's trying to teach us in the Old Testament, he was trying to teach us these two things. You love God supremely. He's got to be first. And you love other people sincerely. That's what God's trying to say. These are the two great commandments. And we equally share in the great commandment that we are called by God. and We're called by Jesus to love God and to love others. And that is what motivates us. That is what impels us to do what we do. The great commandment. Now listen, Jesus doesn't give us room to divide these two commandments. They say, well, I love God, but I don't love that person. No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus wasn't asked about the two, but he put these two together as a way of illustrating you can't have love for God without it naturally being demonstrated in love for your neighbor. Because if you really love God, you will love people created in His image, and you'll love the people He loves. Don and I have three kids. I can't believe it now. They're grown. My youngest is now 18 years old. I don't look old enough, do I? No. Some of you need to repent of lying. <laughs> but, but we have three kids, and if you want to get on our good side, love my kids. Treat my kids with respect. If you want to get on my bad side, disrespect my kids. You, you can do a lot to me, and it won't bug me. 
And I think sometimes maybe God feels the same way. We can sing all the songs that we want to sing and read all the verses and hang all the scriptures on the wall that we want to do about loving God. But if we're not loving other people, our love for God is suspect. John, the apostle, would write in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, It's wrong to say you love God whom you've never seen and hate your brother whom you do see. You, see, you just can't have it both ways. You've got you to love God, and that's going to be demonstrated in how you love others. And I'll be honest, I don't know if the world always sees or hears our love for other people when we Christians add our voices to the debates of our day. Listen, the church needs to add her voice to the issues of the day, but we don't need to add vitriol. And often I'm afraid that some of the stuff that we say in the name of religion or politics is nothing but thinly veiled animosity for people who are different than us. Our political system has so polarized our country that you can't have people that disagree agreeably. No, if you don't agree with me, you are the enemy and I must destroy you. And often that's expected in the world, but it's heartbreaking when you see it in the name of Christ. And Christians, we need to be careful. It's not loving to slander another person's character. And yet I see people do that all the time by passing on gossip and conspiracy theories that are ugly with no first-hand evidence or proof to back it up. But because it made them feel better about someone they already don't like, they hit share. And it's a stench in the nostrils of God because God detests slander. But we do that, and it's not loving. That's not saying don't, don't disagree. It's not saying don't make your points, don't make your argument. But make sure love is what's motivating what you do and what you say. And if we truly love God, and if we truly love our neighbors, then we will link arms and hearts as followers of Jesus to go and tell this world about Jesus because contrary to what some people think today, the hope of the world doesn't come riding on the back of an elephant or a donkey. The hope of this world is the Lamb of God who died for us on the cross of Calvary. And it's our job to go and preach the gospel of Jesus that's why we talk about we share the great commandment, but also the great commission. The great commission is where Jesus being crucified, buried, and resurrected, then before he goes back to the Father in heaven, sends us out into the world with a job to do. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 says, He came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, go to all nations, pantata ethne, go to all people groups, go to all ethnicities, go to all peoples, and you tell them who I am. You tell them what I've done. And we as a church... We must be involved in fighting social injustices wherever we can. That is why this church fights human trafficking. That is why we shelter the homeless. That is why we feed the hungry. That is why we adopt and care for orphans. That is why we come alongside people with any hurt, habit, or hang-up in their life. 
we are a church that wants to fight back against racial prejudice and injustice. And we make no apology for that. And while we do that, let's not forget to do the one thing that Christ has called us and us alone to do as his people. And that is to tell them about Jesus. Others can fight these injustices, but they don't have the gospel. We need to both stand up for what is right and oppose what is wrong. We also need to make sure we're sharing the good news of Jesus. That's why our church has set a vision that we're going to be one church passionately united and focused on reaching the spiritually lost in our community through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Equally, we need the Savior. Equally, we belong to God's family. Equally, we share in the great commandment, the great commission. And then finally, equally, we will stand before Jesus. There's coming a day when in God's own time and in his own way, he will bring an end to human history. And all people and all nations will stand before him and be judged. Christians standing before Jesus will not stand there to be determined whether they're saved or not, whether they get to go to heaven or not. That is determined in life the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You are eternally secure. But we will stand before him to give an account of how we've lived our lives as Christians and to be rewarded accordingly. And the Apostle John, late in his life, was banished to the island of Patmos by a Roman emperor. And there he is, separated from the church he loved and his family. You talk about quarantine. How would you like to be quarantined to a rocky six-mile by nine-mile island, not knowing if you will ever live to see the people you love again and the church you love? But while he was there, the Holy Spirit of God gave him a revelation of Jesus and what Jesus was going to do when Jesus returns. By the way, a little parenthetical note, the book of Revelation is singular. It's one revelation. It's not the book of Revelations, plural. It's one revelation. It's all about Jesus. And in that revelation, the Spirit of God gave John, John saw what has yet to happen. It's going to come one day, we don't know when, when all the redeemed of all the ages of human history are standing before the throne of Jesus. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John got a glimpse of that coming day when we stand before Jesus and we worship him as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And John says, you know what I saw? I saw a multitude that no one could number. It's, it's a great multitude that is innumerable. The crowd is massive. And this crowd is not monolithic. It's not all a bunch of white people. It's not all a bunch of Americans. It's not all a bunch of men. It's not all just a bunch of women. He says, no, I saw in this crowd people from every nation, from all tribes, all people groups, speaking every language. Because God has redeemed people throughout the ages for himself. That's what heaven's going to look like. Heaven's going to be awesome. Heaven's going to be beautiful. 
Heaven's going to be diverse like the creation that God made. And if you don't like diversity, you're not going to like heaven. But chances are you won't need to worry about that. In our philosophy at Fort Caroline Baptist Churches, if that's what heaven's going to look like, why don't we get a head start and let the church be a microcosm of heaven on earth? That's what I love. I'm not interested in the white church. I'm not interested in the black church. I'm not interested in the American church. I'm interested in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the only color that really matters to us is the crimson shed blood of Jesus, and that we come together before his throne, worshiping him, not losing our distinctiveness, but bringing it all to him in praise and glory and worship for what he has done in saving us from our sin. When the church is viewed by the world, they need to see a little foretaste of glory divine. Listen, friends, this out of heaven, we're going to have our differences, our opinions, our convictions. We're not always going to see eye to eye. And I'm not asking you to die to all of that. But what I am asking you is keep the main thing, the main thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one race, the human race, were created in the image of God, loved equally by God. There's one problem, it's the sin problem. I've contributed to it, you've contributed to it. The best person you know, other than Jesus, he's the only perfect one who ever lived, is a part of the sin problem. The only solution is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And the ultimate hope is that one day Christ is going to return and he's going to make all wrong right. And in the meantime... He says, I've completed the work of the cross, but I'm going to give you the word of the cross. You go and tell everybody. Because the gospel will not only help them in time, it will prepare them for eternity. And that, my friends, is why we come together as a church united in the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reminder. I even thank you for stepping on my toes Because you preached this to me before I could even stand up here and preach it to anyone else. And God, the easiest thing I've done today is preach this. The hardest part is going to be for me to live it consistently day by day. And I admit to you, God, I can't. But by your Holy Spirit in me and the example of Jesus Christ, I can. So by your grace and through your power, would you help me and each one in this room to remember that what unites us in the Lord is greater than what divides us in life. So, Father, I pray that whatever we do, you would help strengthen our unity and our testimony in this world for Jesus. Father, I thank you for this church. And there could be someone here this morning or someone listening who needs Jesus as their Savior. And I pray that right now they would turn from their sin, admit to you that they've not loved you like they should. They've not loved others like they should. That is sin. And because of our sin, we deserve separation from you, a perfect and holy God. But because you love us so much, you sent your son Jesus to die for us, to take our punishment, to rise from the dead, having done that. And if we'll simply believe in him, we'll have the gift of eternal life. So I pray, Father, maybe there's a husband or a wife or a mom or a dad or a single adult here or a senior adult or one of these kids or teenagers that today they will trust in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.